0: Thrive, the Eastern Health Junior Doctors Medical Education Podcast. Thrive is brought to you by a team of junior doctors asking great questions and producing essential education. In 2022, we're excited to bring you more content and help you become a more confident, capable doctor. I'm Emma, an ED physician and supervisor of junior doctor training at Eastern Health, and I love seeing junior doctors grow. So let's jump right in.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Tasha, a basic physician trainee at Eastern Health, and I'm excited to talk to some of our amazing senior doctors to learn more about specialty medicine. Today we will be talking about iron studies. This is a test that is ordered quite routinely for many of our patients, yet the interpretation and application of iron studies is often not straightforward. To help us learn a little bit more about iron studies and iron deficiency, I am joined today by Dr Meena Nagarithanam, who is one of our haematology advanced trainees at Box Hill Hospital. Good morning Meena.
2: Hi Tusha, good morning.
1: Before we get started, could you explain, Mina, how iron is actually metabolized around the body?
2: Okay, so um, the iron homeostasis um, is quite complex and, and um, I think uh, the mechanism of uh, regulating systemic iron is um, mainly largely centered on the liver and it involves two molecules called the hepcidin and ferroportin. And um, the, these are some of the important um, molecules which uh, basically um, is involved in the homeostasis of iron. And uh, just to talk a bit about how ions absorbed and metabolized around the body is, so the dietary iron that we consume is absorbed in the um, gastrointestinal tract through the intestinal enterocytes, and it's subsequently released into the circulation, and it's bound to a protein called transferrin, and it's then transported to um, different body tissues. And the transferrin receptors uh, usually found on the aeros- which are the immature red cells and they accept the iron transferrin complex. So um, I mentioned earlier that the iron is usually bound to transferrin, and this iron transferrin complex then binds to the transferrin receptor, which is found in the immature red cells, and this then allows the iron to be incorporated into hemoglobin. So this process is um, basically happening at all times, and there is actually a balance that goes on. So just like any other processes in the body, there is the iron home homeostatic mechanism, which um, upregulates and downregulates the iron levels in the body. So um, there are various mechanisms which impacts the regulation of iron metabolism. So um, there are some conditions or even some states, human body states, which upregulates the um, iron absorption. So in um, states like iron deficiency or increased erythropoiesis, the absorption is usually increased. Um, And uh, it's upregulated basically um, through different mechanisms, which I won't go into detail, but these are some of the things to know. Yeah. And um, iron absorption is usually improved with, coal, with uh, consumption of uh, absorbic, ascorbic acid, which is also known as vitamin C. And then there's also down-regulation of iron. And this usually happens in a state where there is chronic inflammation or even, or, or even when the body's iron repeats. So the, the iron uh, levels are down-regulated to, to basically maintain a, a normal level of iron storage. So um, down is usually uh, controlled by this molecule called hepcidin and this is released during periods of inflammation and it inhibits the release of iron from the um, intestinal cells, also known as the enterocytes and macrophages. And also during chronic inflammatory states, malignancy or even renal diseases, hepcidin levels can actually rise and this can cause a functional iron deficiency state. So um, it's a bit of of a balance here, and the main molecule which um, uh, is responsible for iron homeostasis is hepcidin, and it can be upregulated or downregulated depending on the body status.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot more sense now, particularly because iron homeostasis can be quite complex. So now let's move on to the inpatient setting. In what sorts of clinical situations would it be appropriate to consider iron studies? Because I feel like every time I work on a medical unit, the patient routinely has iron studies ordered, but sometimes I struggle to understand what the rationale for that is.
2: Yeah, that's right. So iron deficiency is the most common cause of anemia. And I think um, iron studies should be routinely audited for investigation of anemia. And um, on the other hand, you've also got iron load, overload which can lead to hepatitis and things like um, arthralgia. So it may also be ordered to rule out hemochromatosis when, um, when, a, when a patient presents with symptoms of iron overload. Okay. And um, findings of elevated ferritin usually may require genetic studies to diagnose iron overload disorders, but these are not as common. Um, iron deficiency is basically the most common cause of anemia, and I think uh, most of our patients, they do end up getting iron studies at some point in their life, And um, I think it also should be considered for chronic conditions, which may have been exacerbated or, um, you know, such as, uh, and and we can actually optimize the um, condition with iron repletion in some of the conditions, which includes heart failure, shortness of breath, or even restless leg syndrome. So we always try and make sure these patients are iron replete to just to improve their symptoms overall.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So what are the different biochemical components then of iron studies and how might a junior doctor such as myself interpret them?
2: Yeah, so I think... uh... Um, it's always been a um, you know spinal reflex to order iron studies, but not knowing the components of it. So I think it's important to get to know what um, exactly they mean and how mm-hmm. how would that be um, helpful for um, um you know for diagnosing iron deficiency anemia. So mainly the most important uh, parameter here would be the ferritin levels, and this directly correlates with the concentration of iron stores. So um, concentration of a uh, um, of less than fifteen um, micrograms per liter are quite specific for iron depletion. If you have a normal or a high ferritin level, it does not necessarily indicate iron overload because ferritin is also an acute phase reactant. So sometimes during um, you know if 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 you have um, sepsis or infection that's going on at the same time, you you expect to have high you expect to find high ferritin levels because It's an acute phase reactant. So in these sort of circumstances, a C-reactive protein can also be helpful. Um, and then um, so that's the ferritin uh, part of things and then there's also the um, TIBC which is known as the um, total iron binding capacity and this is equally important Um, and it basically measures the ability of iron to bind to transferrin molecules so this is the transport uh, protein the transferrin molecules so it tells us how much uh, the iron is bound to this protein and um, TIBC levels are usually increased in iron deficiency as the body is trying to attempt to increase the delivery of iron to body tissues. So if it's actually quite high, then it should trigger in your mind that this could be a state of iron deficiency. And then there's also the serum iron that we measure, which is part of the iron studies. This is another measure of iron status. But then um, it's considered a poor marker of actual iron status given its variation. So we don't normally look at these particular um, um, serum iron levels to diagnose iron deficiency. But this can be low in the setting of iron deficiency anemia. But this is not the only marker we look at. Of course. And then there is also the transferrin saturation. So these um, transferrin saturation, they they're actually referring to the proportion of transferrin molecules that are bound to iron, which can indicate a potential iron deficiency in settings where interpretation of ferritin is um, basically complicated by inflammation. So like I mentioned earlier, sometimes in states of um, active or chronic inflammation, the ferritin levels can be high. So if you want to differentiate to know um, or even even to, um, you know, Tell them apart whether this is iron deficiency or whether it's just inflammation. Then the transferrin saturation then helps here, and it can basically um, uh, tell you whether um, the iron deficiency is um, uh, is complicated by inflammation or not. So um, these are the four important um, parameters that we look into when we um, when we when when we are uh, thinking of diagnosing someone with iron deficiency anemia.
1: Let's take a moment here to discuss an analogy to help us remember the different components of iron studies. So iron molecules can be equated to passengers in a transport network, where ferritin is a measure of how full a depot is of passengers that are going to a particular destination. A high ferritin would correlate well, outside of inflammatory states, with iron repletion. Transferrin molecules are like the buses that move passengers to the depot. So the more passengers that are filling the buses, or the higher the transferrin saturation, the more passengers that will be arriving at the depot. So again, a high transferrin saturation correlates well with iron repletion. Then we've got the actual number of buses, like the transfer level, which will increase if the number of passengers are low in order to bring more passengers into the depot. So a high transfer level correlates with iron deficiency states. And then we've got the iron level, which are like the passengers outside the transport system, you can call them the pedestrians, so they're not as relevant to the number of passengers in the transport network, and from a clinical perspective, we tend to rely less on the iron level compared to the other parameters. I think particularly from a junior doctor perspective, ferritin is the first thing I look at, which, as you mentioned, can be tricky to interpret if the patient has inflammation. And if the patient is in hospital, then I guess they will be acutely unwell. So it's good to know that there are other parameters that we can look at to aid our interpretation of iron studies. And I know sometimes the registrar or consultant might actually suggest just repeating the iron studies in the community setting when the patient is well, so that we can get a ferritin count that is less likely to be elevated due to inflammatory states. So now let's have a chat about management. How should a junior doctor manage iron deficiency?
2: Yeah, so um, management of iron deficiency itself is divided into two steps. So first you optimize the hemoglobin and iron levels and then always look for an underlying cause that that would, you know, that's leading to this iron deficiency state. So it's important to first... um, Uh, replenish the iron stores, and then go back to find out what's the cause. So this can be in the form of chronic GI bleeding or malignancy. So we should always attempt to find out what's going on or what's causing the iron deficiency anemia. So I think it's quite common uh, for patients to have outpatient scopes to rule out gastrointestinal bleeding, especially if, if they've had iron deficiency for a prolonged period of time. It's always important to rule out malignancy in this setting.
1: Yeah, definitely. And what would be some of the ways of optimising hemoglobin and iron levels?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, So there are two forms of um, iron um, supplementation. So you've got the oral supplements and um, the usual recommended dose of oral iron for the treatment of iron deficiency is about 100 to 200 milligrams of elemental iron daily. Um, And I think it's important to educate patients on um, the gastrointestinal adverse effects of oral iron supplementation, mainly in the form of cramping, bloating, and constipation. And uh, this can actually be reduced uh, by recommending smaller and frequent divided doses or taking the dose uh, with food at night. So this can actually help with the gastrointestinal side effects because otherwise um, patients may not be compliant. Um, And this is the main issue with oral iron. And usually these supplements can be continued for about three to six months after normalization of hemoglobin anyway. And then um, we can think of cutting down from then. And then um, so there are there are a lot of um, oral iron available in the market. So it can be in the form of Ferrograd, Maltifer, Ferro tablets, ferro liquid, or even iron granules. So there are a lot of them in the market. And then there's also the intravenous therapy. And uh, this is basically providing direct um, iron into the bloodstream, and it achieves and, and usually IV or um, IV iron um, has hundred percent bioavailability, and therefore it's usually more rapid form of iron replacement compared to oral iron. And uh, usually this can be considered for patients with um, you know intolerance to oral iron, non compliance, or lack of efficacy with oral iron for whatever reason, or even in, even if patients have intestinal malabsorption, for example, in uh, patients with inflammatory bowel disease, if they are finding it hard to absorb iron, I think iron replacement in the form of intravenous iron can be useful in this sort of setting.
1: Yep. Okay. And for our listeners, we will include some common oral supplements and their doses that are used in Australia in our podcast summary. In terms of IV replacement, I know Eastern Health uses um, two forms of iron. The first one being iron carboxymaltose, which is also known as pharyngect. This is the sort of iron that we usually administer on discharge. So usually prepped as 1000 milligrams of iron carboxymaltose in 100 mils of normal saline administered over 15 minutes. For inpatient infusions, we usually use iron polymaltose, which is dosed differently depending on the patient's weight and hemoglobin. Um, you can find the dosing table on the Eastern Eastern Health Objectify page, and we can also include a link to it in our podcast summary. And also, just as a reminder to our listeners, any patient receiving intravenous iron replacement at Eastern Health requires a written consent form to be completed, which should include an explanation of some of the adverse effects that might be associated with products like Ferinject and iron polymaltose. So some of the common side effects I like to discuss include headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, and hypotension, while some of the uncommon features are things like chest pain and shortness of breath rarely there is risk of anaphylaxis particularly in patients who have not had intravenous iron before and finally an important adverse effect not to be missed is permanent skin staining which can occur sometimes when the iron extravasates while it's being given through the cannula so it's important to actually discuss these with the patient and record and document it in the consent form prior to actually administering the iron so, now what sorts of situations would it be important to consider a blood transfusion to treat the anemia?
2: Okay, so I guess um, red cell transfusion is normally reserved for immediate and targeted management of severe anemia, especially when patients come in with compromised end organ function um, or iron deficiency anemia that's complicated by, um, um, you know, acute bleeding. Um, This sort of uh, management uh, of transfusing blood is quite expensive and potentially even hazardous and it carries significant risk and it should only be considered in severe cases of anemia or if the patient, him or herself is symptomatic from anemia and uh, and then iron therapy should then follow um, transfusion to replenish the iron stores.
1: Great. And I'm assuming all of this should be coupled with advice regarding dietary intake of iron?
2: Yes, that's right. Um, Dietary education should always be provided for secondary prevention. So it's important to um, always consume iron-rich foods such as red meat, dark green leafy vegetables, beans, iron fortified cereals and grains, dried fruits. These are some of the um, um, high iron content uh, food. And it's also important to um, educate patients on food that can maximize iron absorption, such as, um, you know, or or those which uh, minimize and avoid those which minimize iron absorption by reducing tea consumption with meals and um, increasing vitamin C intake can actually increase your iron absorption. So um, these are some of the things to be a whale.
1: Wow, I'm so impressed by all the different foods you named, Mina. Um, I feel like as a vegetarian, I don't have any more excuses about being iron deficient. Um, So now I'll move on to my final question. What might be some of the causes of iron deficiency that you might need to investigate for?
2: Um, So... As soon as you are um, aware that this, this particular patient that you are managing has iron deficiency, always think about three things. So it's either because this patient has increasing requirement, and this can be um, you know, in pregnancy states or in you know younger patients who are going through rapid growth. And, and then the next um, category would be increased losses. So blood loss in particular, especially gastrointestinal bleeding, as well as hemolysis. And then there's also the other category which is from reduced absorption and this can happen in you know malabsorption um, patients with celiac disease or even chronic inflammatory or malignant disorders and not forgetting those with poor diet
1: yeah definitely and obviously not forgetting menorrhagia as a significant other cause of iron deficiency in females as well
2: once you've um, got this in mind, I think then it'll be easier to uh, rule out different causes of anemia and then narrow them down and manage them accordingly.
1: Oh, wonderful. Well, Mina, I think you've given us a fantastic framework to assess, diagnose and manage iron deficiency. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm sure we will be having you back for more amazing haematology topics in the future.
2: No worries. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us for Thrive. Don't forget you can access show notes for this podcast through Workplace. Log in with your Eastern Health email address and password and search for the Thrive Group. This is your education. Please get in touch and let us know how we're doing meeting your needs, ask us a question or suggest a topic you'd love to hear us cover. You may also be interested in producing a podcast with us in your area of specialty interest. It's great CV building and an excellent start in medical education. You can contact us at thrive at easternhealth.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.